time, so we'll not go into the whole Google debacle. Um, in a nutshell, um, January of 2020, I ran a story from uh, Radio Free Europe, which is actually a United States taxpayer organization that we fund, interviewed an Israeli lieutenant colonel whose expertise is bioweapons, and he said that the coronavirus had all the hallmarkings of a bioweapons lab leak. I ran the story, and the next day, it was completely off Google. But I realize now it was not Google. We were, number, we were in the top 10. I realize now it wasn't even Google. It was a three-letter agency that didn't like that out. So it's bigger than, than what we see. So I try not to get caught up in all this nonsense. The reality is that the king is coming and the enemy is trying to suppress truth. I live by a commandment, thou shalt not lie. If, if I can't verify it, <laughs> if I can't verify it, I just won't publish it. Even when we're covering the Ukrainian war, I, I think that both sides are in, 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 you know, we're not fighting for democracy. I don't have time to get into it, but I, I post up multiple letters that were sent to the Secretary of State how the Asgard Brigade is basically neo-Nazis. But most people don't even understand how that even got started. If you actually study Ukrainian history very quickly, in a nutshell, Ukrainian history is simply this, that in the 1920s, under Stalin, there were so many Ukrainians that died in that famine. They were anti-Russian. And so when, when Hitler came, they actually looked at him as their savior against Stalin. And that's how the heart of neo-Nazism was within Ukraine. Now, it's not all Ukrainians, but if you have 5% that are neo-Nazis, I mean, you know, and, but at the same time, Russia is not a good guy. I mean, Putin is, I mean, he, he slaughters any kind of journalist that speaks out against him. The reality is the whole thing is a quagmire. So what I honestly try to do is I try to report what's happening, what the Ukrainians say, what the Russians say, but then what's happening to believers, because that's the, that's the, real, the real issue is that most people don't realize that within the first couple of weeks of the war, 450 churches were destroyed. So anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. I can't do that because I got lots to cover. Abba Father, I ask you, Lord, that you pour out your Ruach fresh and new upon me. I ask you, Lord, that you pour your, your spirit fresh and new upon every person here, Father. I ask you, Father, that you give them ears to hear and eyes to see. And Father, there's so much going on in the world today. I ask you, Lord, for clarity of thought, clarity of mind. And I ask you, Father, that this would be delivered in an expedite manner, but in a manner that everyone can receive it. B'Shem Yeshua Mashiach, in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, amen. Uh, for those that are, don't get our worthy briefs, sign up for it. But more importantly, we have a Telegram channel. Telegram is completely uncensored social media. If you're not on Telegram, I suggest getting on Telegram, start following some of the people that are actually following the war. If you understand how Worthy News was set up, Worthy News was set up, oh here, I'll just get that real quick, Did you get it? Okay, uh, Worthy News was set up, you know, watch you therefore and pray always and may be found worthy to escape these things. The idea of Worthy News was actually to quit the watchman. <laughs> when we go ahead and quit watchmen, I do not get caught up in um, almost too much news, you get lost in the news. 
And what, what tends to happen is that people get hyper-focused on issues that really don't matter prophetically. You know, they're really caught up, for example, this particular weekend, Stacey Abrams' um, brother-in-law just got arrested for sex trafficking in Florida. Now, that's going to be the main issue a lot of people are going to focus on. But they're not going to focus on, for example, that there was a, a pastor that was just shot in Glendale, and evangelist on the street was just shot as he was preaching the word. That was a major deal. There was a, 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 Georgia, uh, a Georgia football uh, coach that was just fired because literally just after and right before a game, he allowed a pastor to come up. He preached the word, and 20, 20 kids gave their lives to Jesus, and they were baptized. And he was just fired. That, that's just today's news. But we're going to focus on Stacey Abrams. Okay, we as believers, there's a lot bigger issues at, at stake. And so I keep my, when we do our news, it's kingdom focused. Okay, the next thing to pray always, the idea for worthy news was to actually not only give you a daily devotion, but actually as you read through the news, you actually are praying through the news. That's the idea, but that's the big thing about Telegram, because nothing is censored. As soon as you see an alert, as soon as I post up an alert about this, this Baptist pastor, or I mean, this, this evangelist that was shot, I'm praying that there's literally a thousand people that are praying at the same time. Because that's, that's what's called exponential prayer. You know, where two or more are gathered, he's in our midst, but you start getting 10, 15, 20 people. The enemy doesn't want exponentiality of prayer. You know, five shall taste 100, and 10 should put 10,000 in flight. There's an exponentiality. What happens is there's... there's Power of prayer becomes multiplied as more people are gathered together. The enemy doesn't want that. That's why you, you, you see a lot of an attempt of the enemy not to allow big prayer meetings to take place. And the other thing that tends, tends to take place is when a big prayer meeting does get together, they're usually not praying. They're usually distracted on something else instead of actually an opportunity to release power. Because if you understand how God is releasing power right now, if God wanted to, if he released just point zero 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 one percent of his power, the enemy would be wiped out. Because God is all-powerful. So how is God releasing power? How is God releasing? He's releasing his power by how we pray. That's how, so the people don't understand how you're so interconnected, interconnected to how God is working. And God is actually trying to, <laughs> to do something awesome. And that's why we're, we're part of this whole kingdom process. Um, the next thing is um, that we may be found worthy. You know, the Lord is coming back really, really soon. The, the very first thing that Yeshua said about the last days was, take heed that no man deceive you. Which means we're surrounded by liars. We literally have, for the last two to three weeks, we have not linked to a single article. We are completely full-blown as a Christian news agency. We now have journalists in Jerusalem, Budapest, Rome, and throughout the United States. We have not linked to anyone. We're producing all of our own content. So um, the reality is I just can't trust anything anymore. <laughs> so anyway, so we got a lot to cover. Uh, if you don't get our worthy briefs, it's free. It's an email I'll send out. It goes out to about 35,000 people a day. If you'd like to sign up, okay, I'll let you get there. And okay, last phone gone. You there? And he's gone. Okay, no, he's not gone. You got there? <laughs> okay, there we go. Now, I, I'm really happy. Okay, I have to tell you honestly, 
I am not a fundraiser. I do not send out appeal letters. I do not. It's kind of like the anti-thesis of uh, very early in my walk, I used to work for a very large organization, and I raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for his organization within six months. But then I felt like all I was doing was raising money and wasn't doing ministry. And so, not to say that it gave me a sour taste in my mouth, but I'm almost anti-fundraising. Like, you know, I don't even like talking about money, because I think that money, when you talk about money with ministry, it just, it just muddies the water. And so I have a saying, if it's God's will, it's God's bill, you know, and, you know, that way, we don't, it's not like we have a huge amount of money in the bank, and every month we, you know, we, I know it's crazy, I literally have to raise the money for a car every month. Like, I literally, because we have employees now, we have employees all over the world, we, it's not really for, for, you know, it's not only the service or anything, it's like raising a car, but, but here's how I know I'm in his will, because the money's there. If I sent out appeal letters and sent out letters all the time, you know, like, you know, whatever, I'd be so focused on sending out appeal letters to try to, if it's God's will, it's, he's going to provide for it. I don't have to worry about sending money, you know what I mean? <laughs> but here we are, we're really redeployed in America, and I do happen to be a pretty good fundraiser. So I put together this Israel fund. Every single dime that's come in goes straight to ministries in Israel. Within the first two and a half weeks, we raised $10,000. That's all going inside of Israel. We don't take a dime from it. It doesn't go to any. If you'd like to go ahead and support believers in the land of Israel and you want to know that's going there, that's the way you can do it. Okay, now let's talk about the Simchat Torah War. There's a lot going on. I'm going to unpack a lot. There's a, we're going to get into how significant of the timing of this war was. But before I would get into that, I want you to understand that we're in the middle of a test. People don't, just don't realize that you're in a test. Most people are failing the test because they don't even understand that there's test questions, right? If Yeshua was tested for 40 days before he started ministry, if Yeshua was tested, <laughs> do you think you're not going to have a test? And the reality is that God is testing the righteous. And the test question right now is, will you stand with God's word and realize that God has a plan for the Jewish people? Because this is a test question. It literally says in Joel, he says, he brings the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Because, ready, of how they treated my heritage Israel when they scattered them across the nations and how they divided my land. So there's a, that's a test question. People don't realize that's a test question. But notice here, at the same time, he says he hates the one that loves violence. That word violence in Hebrew is Hamas. Literally, it's Hamas the same day with the terrorist organization that wreaks so much havoc. So that's a, a test question. Now, the next thing is this. Well, how should we understand the situation in Gaza? Well, once you understand that in the Gaza Strip, there's only one evangelical church. Now, here's one particular reason why you should never look at Wikipedia for facts. Because this particular article says the only Gaza church in the state of Palestine. What? I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> there is no Palestinian state. Uh, so that's why you shouldn't go to Wikipedia for news. But at the same time, you have to understand there's only one evangelical church. And the reason why it's allowed to exist, it's caught, it's caught up in a thing called replacement theology. And it actually spits out viral hatred toward Jewish people. And so for propaganda purposes, so that Hamas can say that we're open to all religions, 
There is one evangelical church, one Catholic church, and one Greek Orthodox church. That's all that's in all the Gaza Strip. That means there's 2.3 million Gazan citizens without even an opportunity to hear the gospel. If you allow Hamas to continue to operate, the Bible Society that was shut down in 2009, 2010, because the manager of the Bible Society was shot, because you know there's no access to the gospel, that is the number one reason why Israel has to deal with Hamas. Just so that the people can have an opportunity. Now I want to tell you a testimony. I just published this on Worthy News. 200 Muslim men just had visions of Yeshua and came to faith. There are things happening supernaturally. I believe that God is allowing this to take place so that the sons of Ishmael can have an opportunity. If we get caught up in the viral hatred, then we're getting caught up in the same spirit that Jonah had. If you don't understand the whole situation with Jonah, at the time of Jonah, Jonah was told by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was really the first terrorist empire. They went ahead and crucified people. They were the ones that, that were the first ones to, to behead people. They, they had this jihadist mindset. And when Jonah is told to go to Nineveh, he says, look, they, they're terrorists. They killed people. The whole displacement of the ten tribes of Israel happens on the Assyrian Empire. That's how the Jews were expelled out of land. And at the same time, how all these foreigners came into the land. It was so much so that by the time that, that Yeshua comes on the scene... That he said, what good thing could come out of the Galilee? Why? Because it was so full of pagans. It was so full of pagan idols. So when God, God tells Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh, he says, they're terrorists. Not only are they terrorists, but now they've polluted the land. they filled the land with idols. They, 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 you know, these are pagans. And he goes ahead and, and God says to go, to go east to Nineveh. And he goes to Tarshish. That's as far west as you can go. That's Spain. But, you know, of course, if you get swallowed up by a great fish, you know, you'd have a readjustment, you know, attitude of readjustment, you know. So he gets readjusted. Is that he goes into And when he preaches the word, what happens? They come to faith. The greatest revival recorded in, in the Old Testament happens in Nineveh. And Jonah's at the revival says, oh, God, would you please kill me? He doesn't even realize what God is doing. And that same spirit can go ahead and, and occupy us because when James and John were in Samaria, I mean, they, how did the Samarians get there? It was because of all this pagan stuff from the Assyrians. And they said, well, they don't receive the word from us. Should we call down heaven, fire from heaven like Elijah? And then Yeshua turned and rebuked them. He said, you don't know what spirit you speak of. And the irony is that particular passage where it says he turns and rebukes them and says, you don't know... In most of the modern translations, that's actually not even in there. That's actually yanked out. It's a very important lesson for us. You have to make sure that we have the right mindset, that God is for all peoples. He's for all nations. That he's got a plan for the sons of Ishmael. So, and that's one of the main reasons. Now, the next thing you have to understand is there's a lot of fake news going on, right? Literally, the, the mainstream press will go ahead and listen to the words of terrorists as though it is truth. There is no freedom of press right now in the Gaza Strip. 
The Hamas controls the Gaza Strip. You can't trust anything they say. I just happen to have a clip that I posted up on Telegram within minutes of the rocket hitting, quote-unquote, a hospital. When a rocket hits a hospital, they claimed Israel struck a hospital and killed 500 people. We found out Al Jazeera is actually recording Islamic Jihad firing rockets at 7 o'clock. And they're actually at the hospital. When you see one of the rockets fail, literally comes down. It doesn't hit the hospital. It hits a parking lot. When it hits a parking lot, about 20 people were injured. Several died. It wasn't 500. And it wasn't Israel hitting a hospital. But that false reporting literally caused mass rioting in Jordan, in Turkey, in Lebanon, outside of U.S. embassies, outside of Israeli embassies, all across the world. They had a responsibility to investigate truth before they published anything. And what did they do? They actually unleashed an anti-Semitic spirit that just wants to go ahead and unleash hatred. That's why it's so important to be verifying truth. That's why you really can't trust anything anymore. But anyway, another main thing that's happening is that we're seeing the rise of anti-Semitism. And the rise of anti-Semitism now has hit historic levels. But what is happening spiritually? Well, it's really the fulfillment of Jeremiah 16, when it talks about, I will gather them back to my land, right? What, what do you first do? He first sends for fishermen. He says it goes ahead and draws, draws Jewish people back. But afterwards, he says what? I want to send forth hunters. The rise of anti-Semitism is to drive the rest of Israel back home. I don't think you realize that God really, if you're actually born Jewish, I'm just saying, you know, there is this heart that God has placed in you, and, and there's something going on here that God is getting ready to do something. But in the midst of all this, we want you to understand that right now the enemy wants you to be quiet, wants you to be silent. We just had the largest um, rally for Israel that happened now, to tell you how God has been working in our lives, I have not been booking anything. I have not been organizing anything. We were actually supposed to be in Texas because my daughter just had her 20th birthday, November 16th. So we were planning on leaving. But last Thursday, they announced there was this rally for Israel on Tuesday. And for those that don't understand, I have literally been at every major event except for the J6 protest since we've been here. I was literally at George Floyd a week after that in Minneapolis. I was in the middle of the Chaz and Chad riots in Seattle. I was in the middle of the Portland riots. I was at the Antifa riots day seven or day eight. And who knew that those riots would go for 100 days? How can you report truth and you actually, unless you actually go there? I was actually in Texas and someone was offered to pay for my ticket to go to Texas to go see Donald Trump and to be part of J6 when the Spirit of God prompted, do not go. Now, in this particular situation, the day before the, the, the big protests happened in Washington, D.C., I told my wife the, the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, just elevated us to a level one the chances are there's probably going to be some kind of terrorist attack. Uh, and she says, well, should we go? I said, absolutely. She goes, but you think there's going to be a terrorist attack? Yeah. But we're going? Yeah. What? 
my son had the same situation. He says, you know, I don't think we should go. I said, absolutely, we're going. And, and he goes, well, don't you think there's a, yeah, I think there is. But you're going, absolutely. That doesn't make sense, Dad. No, you have to face every fear. And we stand with the Jewish people, and we don't allow a threat of a terrorist attack to go ahead and hinder who we stand with. We do not let fear dictate us. Fear does two different things. It makes people flee everything and run. Or flee everything. Wait a second. Fate, flee. What is it? No. Yeah, flee everything and run. Or we face everything and rise. That's the way fear works. And if we don't face our fears, we will allow fear to dictate how we operate daily. And so this, for me, I thought was an important lesson for my son. To go ahead, we, we, you think, yes, I do. What you're doing, what, why? Because you have to face it. But here's the situation. This rise of anti-Semitism is coming. It's going to rise, and it's really a test question. Will we stand with the Jewish people? So whether you realize it or not, here was Esther. He was given this, she was given the same situation. Haman was called to eradicate the Jews, and here was Esther. And Esther's been told by Mordecai, if you do not stand up, don't worry, deliverance will come from another place. Ready? The Jewish people will be delivered with or without you. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. But it's a test question. Who knows whether you've not been brought to the kingdom for such time as this? Because it's a test question. Are you realizing that you're part of this whole equation? That you're called to stand with the Jewish people? Now, when we stand with it, it doesn't mean we're against anyone. Because God is for all peoples. But that is a test question. Rather, what Israel is looking at right now, it's looking at who are our friends, right? So says a friend is born in adversity, and here we are, we're in adverse times. But I think that Israel is finding out that, that those that stand with her are not just friends, but we're family. And I think that that is the, the situation that has to come about. They have to come to a realization that those that stand with her are family. And it's in that family relationship that they can they start seeing that Yeshua is their Messiah. If we were running and hiding, then, you know, how could we be showing the light of Yeshua? So there's a lot going on. Now, let's talk about this, this situation I believe, you know, there's a lot of people who say that Israel's going to be taken out of land, they're going to be eradicated. Listen, there's a prophecy here in Amos. It literally says, I'm going to place them on your land. You'll never begin to be plucked out of the land that I've given them. What most people don't realize is that this prophecy is in the middle of really, the, it's the passage of the harvest of harvest. Let me explain. At the beginning of the age, here in Amos, the, the, the question is, uh, given to the Jewish leaders in the first century, what do we do with these Gentiles that believe? There's a whole council meeting. This is happening right around 37, 38 AD. This is about five years, give or take four or five years after the resurrection. Peter is given the vision. The vision is in Joppa, which is in modern-day Tel Aviv, and that's when Cornelius and his family come to faith. And his whole household come to faith. And this is the beginning of the Gentiles. And they received the gift of the Holy Spirit just like they had done. So there's this whole outpouring. And when Peter comes to, to, into Jerusalem, the Jewish men came to him and confronted him and said, How dare you share this message to the Gentiles? 
There was actually an argument at the beginning of the age. What are we doing? You know, and then Peter tells them what happened, and then they glorify God. They glorify God that the gospel had been opened up to the Gentiles. But at the same time, there's a big discussion. What do we do with these Gentiles that believe? The irony is at the end of the age, we have a bunch of Gentiles saying, what do we do with these Jews that believe? Do they need to celebrate Christmas and Easter? I mean, it's a very strange kind of situation. But that's the, the, the irony of how the, the cycle is going in full circle. But at the beginning of the age here, Peter is, or, um, sorry, James is quoting this passage. Yaakov is quoting this passage in Amos talking about the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David. And it talks about the Gentiles who are called by my name. But you continue reading, the end of this passage is really talking about the end of the age. Because in the first century, the, 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 the Jewish people were already in the land. At 35, 36 AD, give or take, whatever that time frame is, the Jews were in the land, the temple was there. The, 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 there was no diaspora. They had, they had started coming home from Babylon. It's not until 70 AD that, that the temple gets destroyed, that Jews are killed by the, the you know, give or take, one and a half million Jews died in that, that period. The Jews are scattered, they're running, they're fleeing. When did they come back? They came back in our, in our generation. They started coming back in the 1860s, and, and now they've come back, and now God says there's a promise here. But what's the central theme? Well, the central theme is really the verse, four, verse 13 in the middle here. It's written in, 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 in prophetic um, poetry. It talks about, you know, the, the, this land that is so, so abundant in a harvest that it's reaping. And look, at, look how it says, it says, the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes of him this with the seed. What's he talking about? It's talking about a harvest so much. There's not enough harvesters that have taken all the wine. Not enough harvesters have taken all the wheat. There's, there's just so much. So what's the theme well, at the beginning of the age is Jewish, or how Gentiles are connected to the kingdom. The end of the age is how Jewish people are connected. And the whole theme is about the harvest. And people don't realize that you're actually part of the harvest of the world. That, that if you can understand this chart and really grab hold of this understanding, you're alive for the harvest of harvests. Let's say a remnant. Let's say 10%. Just 10% are getting saved. Man, I got to move. Okay, we're moving. So... Now, in this generation, give or take, it's about 250 million. Say 10%, that means it would be 25 million. And say in 1,000, we get around 350, 400 million. Uh, that would be a, a remnant of about 35, 40 million. In 1880, right around here, we get our first billion. So right around here is our first billion. That would be about 100 million. This chart is actually stopping at year 2000. We're actually at 8 billion. 8 billion up here. That means our remnant is, give or take, you know, a billion people, 800 million, right? This remnant here will eclipse the remnant of every generation before us combined. It's just math. There's just so many people now. You're alive for the greatest harvest the world's ever had, and you're focused on who's the Antichrist. You don't understand. You're here for the harvest of harvests. We didn't need to figure out who, we don't need to figure out who the Antichrist, we need to figure out who Jesus is, who Yeshua is. So let's go into that. You know, we're in the birthing of a kingdom, and this birthing of a kingdom is, is happening a whole lot differently. You know, when people give birth, you know, a woman can't tell another person, you know, exactly, what, you, you have to actually experience it to understand it. You know, before we read in the word, it would be pestilences in our day. Well, we know that that's diseases, 
But three years ago, if you went into a bank with a mask on, you were being arrested. Two years ago, you couldn't go into a bank without a mask on. And then a year after that, you were going to the bank and the tellers were wearing the masks. So that just tells you who's robbing who. Just saying. But, but, but the, the, the birthing here, we're birthing something. Right before a birth happens, there's a moment in history. I think we're approaching this. It's what I call the water-breaking moment. It, when everything collides, there's a water-breaking. It didn't mean the contractions stopped, but I believe that God's getting ready to pour out his spirit for a harvest of harvests. I'm going to get into that. At the beginning of the age, here was Peter. And if you really understand Peter at the time, he, he didn't really didn't really understand everything was happening. I mean, you think about this 50-day journey that the disciples had to this point. They're terrified that Yeshua gets arrested. They're running and hiding. He gets crucified. Then when they see him arise from the dead, they go, he's risen from the dead. They, they run to the tomb, it's empty. And then when they see Yeshua for the first time, they say, it's a ghost, right? And they said, no, no, touch me, touch me. They touch him. And then they, they tell, you know, Thomas. Thomas still doesn't believe his 11 friends and the words of Yeshua. They still doesn't believe. He finally believes, you know, all these things are happening. They, and now Yeshua's with them, you know, one and off for 40 days. He's teaching them about the kingdom. And then 40 days later, after the resurrection, he goes, I'm seeing you later. Where are you going? What do you mean you're leaving? I thought we were setting up a kingdom. What's, go, what's going, when are you coming back? Oh, you know, God, you know, what are we supposed to do? Supposed to stay here to do a powerful one high. What's that mean? Well, you just have to wait and find out. They didn't have a handbook. We're in the last days. We kind of have a handbook, but it's happening a whole lot differently than we understand. Why? Because God wants to be led by, the, he wants to teach us by his spirit, everything that's going on. So I'm giving you a spiritual understanding of what's happening in the war. But this thing is happening, if you realize that this is at a time when it says, verse 23, or is it 22? 23, it is 23. The same passage where he talks about the beginning of the age, there's something here that says, and, and you be glad to children of Zion, for the Lord's God, your Lord God's given you the early and the latter rain. They don't, they don't understand that the rain cycle is twice in a year, that you're getting ready to have an outpouring. I believe there's something coming, and it's to, to usher in a harvest. Now, Simchat Tor War happens a very unique day. What happens? It's on the eighth day of Sukkot. The eighth day of Sukkot is the day, ready, of a new beginning. What happens? The Torah cycle is read from Genesis all the way to Deuteronomy. The tour, the, all the Torah is read. And then on Simchat Torah, they start Genesis. It means new beginning. It happened to be on the 50th year to the day of the Yom Kippur War. And 50th is Jubilee, which also means new beginnings. So I want you to get understand that God is telling us by the time of this war, there's something new getting ready to take place spiritually. Now I want to take you back to, to 1967. 1966, Time Magazine came out with a thing saying, hey, God is dead. 1967, a war takes place. Who was alive in 1967? Just, just curious. And just seeing who's older than I am, that's all. 67, the war takes place. That begins what's called the Jesus Revolution. It was connected to Jerusalem. At that time, there was really one father figure in his late 40s, early 50s. His name was Chuck Smith. 
Chuck Smith basically pioneers a whole revolution. In this revolution, you actually had more Jewish people come to faith than, and than all 2,000 years before combined. This whole Messianic movement is birthed out of that Jesus revolution. What is taking place? Well, I want you to understand something. There was only one father figure back then, or very few, and now there's a whole generation. See, people that got saved in Jesus, a lot of them had dreams and visions as young men. And I'm not saying you're old, but you know, here you are at the end. What happened in 1967 and 1973, I think it was just a prequel of the event that's coming. Because now there's a whole generation. Because it talks about, before the day of the Lord, it talks about he's going to restore the, the, the heart of the fathers. There's a lack of fathers right now in the world. And he's actually raised up an entire generation that got saved in the Jesus movement. That what they did in the Jesus movement is actually going to be exponential this time around. See, I think that we don't understand the season that we're in. We're getting ready to see the harvest of harvest and that the outpouring of God's Spirit is getting ready to get, happen again. I think that we're getting ready to walk into something. Now, this is an interesting article, and I believe an angel was talking to, you know, saying, hey, let me tell you how to write this title. But I think it's very prophetic because we found the step road. This is about eight years ago we found it. I actually was on the step road when it first was discovered. And when I walked up, I said, oh, my goodness, I'm walking on the very steps that Yeshua walked. How do I know? Because the Pool of Siloam to the, to the Temple Mount, you had to walk up this road. And the Pool of Siloam is very instrumental. We're going to talk about that. But then when they discovered this road, what do you say? This is connected to modern revival. Well, the Pool of Siloam were getting ready to excavate out. Now, the first time I went to Israel, the, this tour guide told me that this little, this little thing is the Pool of Siloam. I looked at him and said, that is not the Pool of Siloam. He goes, no, 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 that's the Pool of Siloam. I said, no, it's not. He goes, well, how do you know? I said, because I've read uh, the life and times and the ministries of, of Yeshua by Alfred Edersheim, 500-page book. And it goes through a very important detail. And we're going to talk about that, but... The, the Pool of Siloam, we've already now excavated down. We're now down 10 feet down, and people don't realize how big the pool is. The pool is about an acre and a quarter in size. It's not a little pool. It's a huge pool. Why is this pool important? Because every Jew, before they went into the temple, you had to be mikvahed. You had to be, you had to go ahead and be cleansed. You had to. You were not allowed to go into the temple uncleansed. That's why I knew it wasn't some little creek. Because during Passover, during Sukkot, and during um, Shavuot, or Pentecost, every male Jew was required to go to Jerusalem. So during those times, there'd be 100, 150,000, 200,000. There'd be hundreds of thousands of people. You need a pool big enough. They weren't going to go ahead and be in this little dinky thing. And the tour guide said, oh, oh, I didn't know. I said, don't worry. We'll teach you a lot later on. But here's the Pool of Siloam. Now, I'm going to throw something at you. I don't have any biblical facts to back this up, but this is just me looking at the situation. At the beginning of the age, when Peter preaches the word and 3,000 Jews come to faith to begin the harvest season, there's 3,000 people that need to be baptized. Do you think they're dunking one at a time? I'm just, just throwing it out there. 
You would think, well, there's a pool 500 yards away. Down the, that, right down there where we already got midfoot. Let's walk down there. 3,000 souls easily fit in this pool. And they did a mikvah. So at the beginning of the age, this was connected to the harvest, the beginning of the harvest. And they're excavating this pool out. What do you think happens when Zechariah 12, 10 comes to pass and they should look upon me whom they pierced? And at that time, all of Israel comes to faith because they have a vision of Yeshua. Do you think they're getting baptized? If they're getting baptized in Jerusalem, wouldn't it make sense that God is preparing a pool for them to be baptized in? I'm just trying to throw something out there. I don't have biblical proof of it, but if it actually happens, I'll tell you in the kingdom for all eternity, I told you so. But, but here's the point. This is a significant sign, them excavating the sign. Now let's go to this understanding. The, the, the pool of Siloam happens on... The, the seventh day of Sukkot, going into the eighth day, is what's called the water drawing. And the water drawing in, in the Talmud and, and throughout uh, and, and a lot of history of, of the early Jewish first century, this was a great time of rejoicing. It says that no one's seen rejoicing like this. Now, at that time, the high priest would go to the pool of he would take a picture, dip it into the thing, and then he would quote this passage. Behold, God is my Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua. And with water, with joy, you shall draw water from the wells of Yeshua. Here is the whole thing. Now, you got to understand that every Jew, every male Jew, has gone down to the pool, the water drawing. They're rejoicing. Everyone's getting mikvahed. They're walking up, and there's processional march. And, Trumpets are blasting, tambourines are happening, everyone's walking up the step road that we discovered. They're walking up the step road, going up. When they get to the top, they literally quote this passage. Now, they quote verse 25, they don't quote verse 26, but verse 25, safe now, is the word Hosanna, or Hosanna. The word Hosanna, that's what that is, safe now. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, I beseech thee, send thou prosperity. Now this happens on the great Rabbah, and this, this passage, the next verse of 26 is, blessed he comes in the name of the Lord. This is the exact same passage that Yeshua uses when he says, O Jerusalem, I wish I could gather you under my wings, but you would not. And just give me the context. Well, if you kind of read this, right, just before they went into Gaza, they quoted verse 25. The one verse away. Just one verse away. Think about that. We're one verse away from the kingdom. But now, right, when they say this, what's happening on the Temple Mount, they get up to the top, and when they say this, the rabbis call for complete silence because now you're supposed to pause, meditate, and think what just took place. Now, you can imagine now the scene on the Temple Mount. There's 100,000 people. They're all in the Temple Mount, and there's complete silence. When, what do we read in John? Yeshua cries out. Literally fulfilling Isaiah 12, 2 and 3. He literally cries out. And he says, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, out of scripture, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What day does this happen? On the last day of Sukkot. We just had a war on the same day. Connected to the last day was an outpouring of God's spirit. Here, I think it's tying us and trying to connect us to something. Now, if you continue reading, this particular passage you know, brings a big division. You know, there's like, you know, is he a prophet? And there's a big argument. It's the same argument today. The issue of who Yeshua is, right? It's not a life and death question. It's an eternal life and eternal death question. It's eternal life and eternal death. This is the biggest question you've got to figure out. If you don't have this question figured out, that's the first question on the test. The Jewish question is like two or three, but this is the first one. You've got to answer this one right. This is connected to eternal life and eternal death. But now notice this. At that particular night, this is the seventh day. There's these huge candelabras. So much so that there wasn't a place in, in all Jerusalem that wasn't lit up. So the, I'm going to give you the understanding of what's happening because we're getting ready to go into John 8. John 7 is he cries out, out of your belly shall flow rivers of water. That night there's a huge festival, everything. There's not a place that's strong. And that, the next day they actually say this prayer. Be thou praised, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who makes light and, and, create, and causes darkness, who makes peace and creates, and, creates, uh, and creates all the light of the world and the treasure of life. Now that's the, that's the prayer that's read. When the next day you have the woman caught in adultery. Oh, let's say it. Oh, I don't have that verse. Oh, yes, I do. Okay, good. I thought I lost a verse. The next day is when the woman is called in adultery. He that has the first stone, let him, you know, he was without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he's literally quoting what they just saw the night before. The whole city of Jerusalem is lit up. They just prayed about the, And he's saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now it continues on. John 9 is the only place the pool of Siloam is connected. And I believe this has given us an indication of something. Because in this passage, we're talking about the blind man that gets healed. He says something very significant in John 4. John 9, 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. Meaning that we're coming to the end of the age. The cutoff date's getting ready to happen. And then there's no one who can work anymore. I believe that this is an indication that we're coming up to the last Shemitah. Can I go over a little bit? I'm going to give you an understanding. Everyone is so hyper-focused on the seven years of tribulation. Hyper-focused on the seven years of tribulation. And this event happened in 2023. Seven years to 2030, which is a lot of key milestones. Everyone's so focused on the wrong thing, they, they forget. I believe there's a, a lesson in, in Exodus, in Genesis rather. When Joseph is cast off by his brothers, he's cast off and he's in Egypt. And when he's in Egypt, 
the Egyptians have one of the greatest harvests they ever had because he talks about seven years of plenty. Seven years of plenty. And then there was no more, no more harvest. There was no more, there was nothing there. And then what happened was when there was no food, his brothers went searching for it. I believe, ready, Joseph is in Egypt. That's, the, that's a picture of the, of the nations, a picture of the Gentiles. And we know that the fullness of the Gentiles must come in before all of Israel gets saved. I think so many people are so hyper-focused on seven years of tribulation, they don't understand the seven-year harvest. Because whatever God has ordained, and I'm not saying it's seven years, whatever God has ordained for the, for the end of how bad it's going to be, I think there's something that prequels that, of a harvest in the middle of chaos. If we're focused on the right things, we'll have the proper mindset of how to approach these last days. It shouldn't be something that we, we shy away from. We should be an opportunity of, of epic proportions that no generation before us has ever had. Because now what? We have all the evidence. We have all the, there is not a single prophetic thing that is not in motion that we can't prove from the word of God. When they're talking about, I just posted up an article today about the IMF putting together the, the, the digital currency. And we know that this isn't the mark of the beast because you have to have a beast. But guess what? It is marching toward it where no man can buy or sell lest they have a mark. When they talk about a red heifer and they're talking about rebuilding a temple, we know that's the abomination of desolation. You, get, you didn't have that talk in 2,000 years ago, 1,500. What, now it's here. We have all the evidence in the world. And guess what? Every soul that comes into the kingdom, you, you have to start thinking eternally. That's eternal rewards already greater than any of this, anything the world can give you, right? Because it says this, when a person comes to faith, right, a soul is worth what? More than the entire world and all that are in of it. When someone comes to faith now, you're actually investing in eternal reward that cannot be measured by this world. And I think that what I see here is a little Gideon army that's getting ready to multiply by 100. I, what I see here is a group of people that's going to get a fresh vision of what they're called to do in these last days. We're not called to cower in fear. We're called to now proclaim. We have every piece of evidence in the world now. The day is coming when no man can work. But guess what? If you're going to do this, don't you think that God's going to equip you to do it? Listen, I want to, I want to kind of jump into this. It says, behold, I'm making all things new. This is a picture of the eighth millennium. This is talking about the time after time. But here he is reoccurring this thing. He says, look, it is done. What people don't understand is the game is already over. In God's mind, it's already done. Right now, you're in the middle of a test, and he's trying to figure out where do you fit in this. But then he says, it is done. And what does he say? To the thirsty. To the thirsty. The problem right now is if you have an apathetic state of mind and you say, I have a glass of water, this is all I need to satisfy me. You don't get no more because you're already satisfied. 
What God is looking for is, I want more. I can't have, I want more, I want more. What should be our heart cry right now is, Lord, don't just turn on the spigot. Open it up and drown me. I mean, just pour it on. Father, just turn it on. That there's nothing, I mean, so that, why? Because he's going to give us an anointing. While it is not going to get easier. When a woman gives birth, it doesn't get easier when the birth comes. But God has promised, I'm with you to the end of the age. And if we don't have the anointing of God, of course you're freaking out. But if you have the anointing of God and understand that God's got a plan and God's got a purpose for you to be here for a life, you were brought to this meeting. I didn't even know I was doing this meeting until yesterday. That God has ordained you for this particular message for a particular purpose. And God has orchestrated all these things out. Because you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And guess what? If you go ahead and, and take this word and receive it and walk with it, guess what it says? To the one who conquers, how can you conquer unless you have an anointing to conquer? And then it says what? I'll be his God and he will be my son. We're at this place. Arise and shine. Arise and shine. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness should cover the earth in deep darkness. Hey, look, it's dark out there. But if you understand who you are and you're going to rise your calling, guess what happens? It says this, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your coming. And if you're wondering what God's going to do with Hamas, look what it says in the same passage in verse 18. Hamas should no longer be heard in your land. Right? Nor devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls Yeshua. He is our guard and our protection in these last days. And what we have to understand is our trust and everything we have is in him. And when we're walking in him, we're walking in him and saying, Lord, I need your eternal speak. I need, the, I need the anointing. I need to... Then you're going to fulfill your calling in these last days. You're not going to cower in fear. You're going to face everything. You're going to rise. You're going to start walking as you're called to walk in these last days. Why? Because God is preparing a harvest for you. We need to start praying and fasting like we've never had before. The time that we have is not very long now. We're at the finish line. It's not time to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shy away. The enemy wants you to be quiet right now. It's not time to be quiet. It's time to get even more bold. So, Abba, Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would seal this word, Father. I ask you, Father, that you would overwhelm this congregation just with a fresh vision, Father, of their purpose and their calling. And I ask you, Lord, that you would just give them a fresh outpouring of your spirit. I ask you, Father, that you would give them a fresh thirst. A fresh thirst, Father. So, Father, do incredible work. Bishem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen and amen.